Hi, it's Chris. Two items before we begin. First, don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It delivers backstories, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for former U.S. Attorney Harry Littman, can a president be indicted? You'll want to see his answer. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about becoming a member of Chris Reback's Conversations? Conversation members get exclusive early access to select podcasts before general release, like my recent live podcast event with Jennifer Palmieri, author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Dear Madam President. You'll also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Does President Trump think he's a king? That was the provocative headline to a recent piece by Harry Littman, a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant U.S. attorney general. Lippmann stated his case after reviewing the legal arguments made in that confidential 20-page memo sent by President Trump's lawyers to the special counsel Robert Mueller. I wanted to talk with Lippmann for many reasons, not least of which, he's a constitutional law expert. We discussed other major legal questions, including Paul Manafort, leaks, and whether a president can pardon himself. It was an excellent conversation. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, the Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Harry Littman. Harry, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much for having me. There's a lot in the news, and this isn't where I expected to start the conversation with you. But as I read about your incredible background, it seems obvious that the pertinent question is, what was your favorite previous job? U.S. Attorney, Deputy Assistant, Attorney General, or, and I'm going to go with choice C, baseball writer for the Associated Press. <laughs> <laughs> right when I when I um, uh, interviewed for law uh, at in law school for um, uh, law firm jobs, I, I found myself across the table from third year associates or fourth year associates, and they would look up at me really forlornly and say, "Why did you ever go to law school?" Um, so the truth of the matter is, it's an easy question, and it actually isn't uh, baseball writer. Though that was super fun, um, but it was U.S. attorney. Because there's just no other job I know of in the legal system and and a few others, period, where you can so much um, call your own shots, sculpt the kind of U.S. attorney you want to to be and have such a, you know, palpable impact in your community. You know, Pittsburgh is a medium-sized city and you do certain things. For example, a gun violence reduction initiative that I um, put into place, and you really see its results. Then, then you know, maybe ten years later, it's it's you, you've left, and it's as if it never happened. But certainly at the time, you feel like you're really able to uh, make a difference, and more kind of selfishly, not have to 
um, navigate bureaucracies or or worry about politics or eight a.m. staff meetings. You're just you're just deciding what seems right. So that was an awesome job. It uh, it ended a little. Uh, I got truncated by the 2000 election, which I was sorry about. But for the three years I was there, it was pretty uh, thrilling day to day. Yeah, I, I bet it was. And given the way uh, some other U.S. attorneys have been dismissed recently, and uh, Barrar is yeah. a, a pod friend, I you know you the way uh, you know you went uh, perhaps in a more natural way. I, I should add, it's great then that U.S. attorney and legal is. Uh, your favorite occupation and the topic for the conversation, because my assumption is um, on the baseball front that you are a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and in, completely, yeah. And you got in, a problem with that? I, well, I I, in, in in two hours, I will, because the Cubs <laughs> host the Pirates, uh, and I, I feel if we were talking later today, one of us would be in a lousy mood. <laughs> and I, I, and I, I hope it wouldn't be me. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, you would expect to win. This has been an unusual season, right? It looked like a rebuilding season for the Pirates. They they got they got McCutcheon, et cetera, and yet they're they're hanging in there pretty good. So, really, if we keep our nose above water, Pittsburgh fans are happy not having the recent, um, uh, you know, heroic or or grand uh, results of the Cubbies. So we're okay. The one thing about the Cubs is that that one day playoff three years ago when god i'm forgetting his name who who was you know the bob gibson of that year arietta yes i know the the arietta game yes i i'm i mean so um but but that was years ago that i don't even think trump was president (laughs) and who can frankly who can remember a time before he was president it's uh it's almost (laughs) it's hard to think of history before then so so let's um uh, talk about him, and let's talk about uh, the piece that you wrote um, last week, or that got published last week in the New York Times. That that really, um, you know, I, I've followed you uh, and your commentary uh, both on air and and you know in various newspapers. Um, but obviously, that piece that you wrote, it really took um, it, it captured people's attention. The 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 headline: President Trump thinks he is king. Um, first of all, did did you write the headline, or did that get written by them? Uh, you after? know, you probably you probably know this. I never. They don't permit you to write headlines, and the fortunes, uh, you know, as measured in viewings and interest of op eds, really have a lot to do with it. I mean, now they are pros, and as this one exemplifies, they can you know they they can uh, really um, put put uh, a, a lot of. Um, of attention and and um, sort of focus on them, and then sometimes there are clunker headlines. But in any event, no, I never wrote it. But but this one, in addition to having a, a uh, panache, also captured the point well. I mean, I think when we think of King, we think immediately as uh, the the person you know a royalist view with someone thinking he usually he is uniquely above the law. And um, uh, the kind, the exact kind of thing that the founding uh, generation revolted against with George III, and so that was a darn good headline that uh, that really was a boost in the arm. But I can take zero credit for it. And the point that you just made uh, that it is what America, you know, that was that was the core of the revolution. We were seeking freedom yeah. from uh, uh, the monarchy. Um, and yet, do you, do you and an idea? I mean, so yes. I mean, he was despotic, but also the notion that you have to, in some sense, uh, you know, genuflect, or that he's 
anything other than another person, the kind of deeply offensive notion at a democratic level, whether it changes your life or not, that there are certain, you know, God-given uh, figures who, to whom the law doesn't apply. Uh, that that was something that I think chafed people in the 1700s, and understandable. So this is a little bit outside of, because uh, I want to get to some of the specific points that you make, but, but on this sure. theme, um, while, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about it, and, you know, Time Magazine picked up on the theme as well. You may have seen their cover this week, subsequent to your piece, um, Trump, it's King Me is the headline, and it's Trump looking in the mirror. Oh, no, and, I didn't see that. Yeah, you, you yeah. should take a look. It's, it, so he's in a suit, you see the back of him, and you see then his reflection looking back at him, and it's him in a crown, and, and as king. I mean, they, Interesting. They, yeah, same. And, but, so, as I'm thinking about this, on the one hand, obviously, you know, very, a very anti-American concept. And yet, on the other hand, uh, he is not unpopular among a certain um, segment of the population. Um, it, it's so- not just segment, but segment that really considers themselves hugely patriotic and America-loving. It's a deep, deep puzzle that critics on the left and in the center, and Republicans for that matter, I mean, my Republican friends certainly don't admire him, haven't quite come to grips with. He seems the embodiment in the way he is and the things he does, the absolute embodiment of contempt for not just democratic norms, but for normal everyday people. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the very paradigm of, of elitism and, um, you know, favored treatment, the thing that you would think most cuts against the grain, most, you know, most goes against the DNA of what we think of as small D democratic norms. But there you go, 40% hanging in. Uh, you know, this is something that I think political scientists will be unpacking for years. My, my best sense you know, I agree that the, the people on the left have made the mistake of thinking, oh, it's a bunch of, you know, yahoos and, and thoughtless people, you know, Friday night football lovers who just go for him. They're, they are, in fact, you know, his his 40 percent at least consist of a lot of thoughtful people. And my best guess is there's just such deep ingrained resentment about the so-called, you know, smugness, the smugness of so-called elites and the kind of, you know, coastal um, uh, imbalance where, you, you, you know, the, the uh, East Coast, West Coast really sees itself as, uh, as some, somewhat privileged. And, and that kind of grievance, which he certainly represents, somehow trumps all the obvious patent uh, contradictions between uh, what, he, what he says and who he is. But that he has the patriotic crowd that he can, you know, change, have do another screw up with the Eagles, and but then just convert it to a day for America, or you know, and people are cheering, is um, confounding to me. And I think Trump and his supporters love that it's confounding to me and and people on on uh, you know who are fellow travelers. I, it's just it should not be that way, and it so clearly is, and we're doing something wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I I, sh- I share your concern, and I, and I think you really I agree with you. I think you you hit on something. I I think a lot about uh, the you know incredible inequality that inequality gap that has grown under democracy and under the system, 
uh, and the system that that you know might not have been working for so many people. Um, and there's there is a there's a clear resentment, and uh, you know the the old system, our, our democracy, uh, was supposed to you know might not a lot of people might not be feeling that it was working for them, and I, I agree. With you. There's got to be a there's got to be an understanding of that, and yet at the same time, mm-hmm. um, I as a democracy loving person don't want to see anything. Um, start to interrupt that, and uh, that's right. Some, you know, and a rule of law loving person. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. But then again, why this guy? And it is interesting. One one has the sense that there's a cadre of Trump supporters, maybe you know as much as half, whose second choice for president might have been Bernie Sanders, and that's something to 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 ponder. But but really, he's he's benefiting from some kind of deep cognitive dissonance. But. Anyway, we you know have to have to somehow come to better grips with it than we have. Yeah. Um, so so let's get into your piece, which covered significantly the confidential twenty page memo that was sent last week by uh, President Trump's lawyers, or was released last week. I guess it was sent previously to that. That's right. Um, That's right. To the special counsel Robert Mueller. Now, um, I'm not an attorney. Uh, but I have watched my cousin Vinny a number of times. Mm-hmm. So let's mm-hmm. uh, let's establish. It's, a, it's, it's opposite. <laughs> Try the best legal legal piece to watch for these purposes. Okay, yeah. okay good. Then I'm then I'm eminently qualified. Um, yeah. uh, so one part of what you did as deputy assistant attorney general, as I understand it, was to advise the attorney general and others on questions of constitutional law. Is that correct? Yes. And part of what you teach at UCLA and maybe elsewhere is constitutional law. I assume that's correct as well. Yes. So you would say you are an expert on the U.S. Constitution? <laughs> this is going to end. Pro- it. This is going to end in an okay place. This is not a gotcha, but there's, not, there's no gotcha here. <laughs> you, it, it, it is feeling a lot like a trial kind of, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, sure. I'll go with that. I'm you, an expert. And constitutional uh, law. Right. What do you want to know? Yeah, I'm not going to pull out any pictures that show, you know, <laughs> tire marks and the, you know the tread marks skipping over the curb. Nothing, nothing like that. Right, right. So, so in Third your piece, okay. in your piece, you wrote the central claim. I'm quoting you: the central claim of the legal memorandum is that it is impossible for the president to illegally obstruct any aspect of the investigation into Russia's election meddling. That's because, as president, Mr. Trump has the constitutional power to terminate the inquiry or pardon his way out of it. Therefore, Mm -hmm. dot, 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 he cannot obstruct justice by exercising this authority, no matter his motivation. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Counselor, is that constitutional? Is that claim? You mean consistent yes. with the Constitution? Yes. No, it's flatly inconsistent with it for a couple of reasons, and you don't need to be a constitutional law scholar exactly. It's almost more a logical piece. But I, you know, even if you leave inside the Constitution for a moment, it is a straightforward non sequitur to say that first, it's quite controversial, at least that he could pardon his way out of it. But but there's it's it's less controversial that he could try to shut it down, but it just doesn't follow that you can take any actions that have that same effect. You know, you couldn't go uh, at night into the office and poison all the um, the attorneys working on it to shut it down and then say, well, I had the power to do it anyway. Reasons matter. Reasons matter under the law, and it's um, it is well established, and there's little dissent. Some, it's mainly 
you know, uh, people who are really um, auditioning to be on Trump's legal team. But there, but there's very little support for the overall notion that it just doesn't matter why you do something. You, it, it's pretty demonstrable that certain action taken with corrupt purpose is criminal or impeachable, whereas the same uh, action taken for other purposes might be impeccable. If he had, if he had um, fired Comey for the reasons that he first seized on with Rod Rosenstein, that wouldn't have been a constitutional uh, problem. If he did it, however, with uh, the corrupt intent of trying to shut down a, a, a probe that might lead to him, that would be any, any, sort of um, uh, school child sees there's a difference with the, the reasons, then, then, it, then it follows, and I can, as a constitutional law expert, marshal a letter and verse in history and precedent to show that the same, that same distinction matters deeply in the law. So point one is it's, a, you know, it's simply a, um, a, a non sequitur. Um, second, you, you know, we anticipated this. There's been back and forth kind of at the op-ed level, and this was really where he would have to go. But it was um, noteworthy that when push comes to shove, you know, this um, supposed supposedly that Trump has wanted to testify or to have an interview, et cetera, he in fact is proffering the most. Uh, absolutist royalist, you could say, of, of arguments that will um, uh, use up time but not prevail in the courts in order to prevent not just testifying, what, by the way, but also getting a subpoena. He's making the further non sequitur of saying, therefore, you can't even even provide me a subpoena. So it's, um, it, it, it shows his sort of psychological hand and their desire to keep him away from raising his right hand. And then as a legal uh, argument, it, it, it is bankrupt. There can be, um, uh, there have been, and then as at a, the law school hypothetical level, you could proffer dozens of, of, of actions that would be unconstitutional by the president because of the reasons she or he has for taking them. So, by watching people like you um, and others and reading people like you and others, it feels like all of us um, non-lawyers have become kind of uh, armchair legal experts. And the big topic, right. of course, is obstruction, right? That's what we're all getting right. the, the guidance on. When you were a U.S. attorney, one of the questions that I kind of haven't gotten a clear sense on is how common is that? How common – when you were a U.S. attorney, how common was it for you to charge somebody – with obstruction, was that is it something that you use? Um, is it is it an obvious charge? How, how common was it? Right. Um, I think for most U.S. attorneys and for chief prosecutors, it's less likely to be a freestanding claim than one that arises uh, in the context of a already um, extant investigation. Um, like it's like it has happened with Manafort in the last couple of days. So I've certainly done obstruction cases, but it was what made you jump was that there was a federal investigation open already that something that someone tried to scuttle or I mean, probably nothing would focus the attention of a prosecuting office as much as, you know, someone trying to do harm to a witness. 
I mean, that's, uh, that really gets to that Zeno, and it also really gets to where prosecutors live and breathe. Um, now, uh, I think it's less, I'm trying to think of situations in which the, the, the initial file opens on the basis of obstruction, presumably at a, you know, another proceeding state court level, et cetera. Oh, and actually I can think of some, they're usually, here would be the other example where it happens a lot. You have a public corruption uh, investigation, you have a dirty politician mm-hmm. taking money and yeah. typically they're, they're going along with that will be some ham-handed attempt to kind of uh, keep it under wraps. So that would be its own charge um, uh, also. So when it happens, it really uh, gets um, prosecutors, um, you know, aggressive uh, attention. But it's true that like here and Nixon and Iran-Contra, uh, we have, a, you know, a, a special concern because we have the president of the United States who's, who swears under the take care clause to do exactly the opposite of obstructing justice to, to provide for, you know, free and, and equal justice and for the system to do its, its um, uh, you know, to go through its paces. So that, I think, is a matter for the body politic of special concern. So I'm not surprised that there that presidents have gotten themselves into trouble over exactly this um, transgression in the past. I want to ask you in a moment, you you raised Paul Manafort, and I want to ask you about him and and a couple other current events in a moment. But just to close out on on your piece from last week, you closed by writing, um, all three of Mr. Trump's pillars of defense support no weight. Mr. Mueller may have practical or policy reasons for staying his hand in finding obstruction, but he needn't worry about the proffered legal impediments. They are all losers. What makes you so sure? You, you feel? Do you feel that if Mueller gets a subpoena for Trump to testify, and if that goes to the Supreme Court, the court will reject those arguments? So I've written about this. Um, I, I feel certain the court will reject these arguments. These arguments are absolutist and exactly the kind of thing that the court has consistently rejected in the past. There are other arguments. They are the ones that are embodied in the OLC memos concluding the president couldn't be indicted. Although, again, big difference between being indicted and being subject to a subpoena. I believe, have, and I've, I've written elsewhere, that, the, that Mueller will prevail, but there is a sense uh, especially among his critics on the left, that um, it is cut and dried. You just look, Nixon versus United States plus Clinton versus Jones equals Trump must testify. I think it's not that straightforward, not to mention the change in composition and the court. So I predict that Mueller would win that battle, but it's, you know, it's a four to one shot, not for him, not a 50 to one uh, shot for him. But these arguments, if they try to lead with them, these, you know, president is king arguments, the, the Supreme Court with relish will shut down nine to nothing. Okay, we will keep an eye out. Uh, let's talk a couple items in the news. Let's uh, start with Manafort. You said earlier this week, I saw it, uh, a post, that you expect Paul Manafort uh, to be sent to federal prison by the end of this week. Um, we're not there yet. We're talking right now Friday uh, just after noon East Coast time. So you've got some hours to go. Um, do you? Why did you feel that way? And do yeah. you still feel that way? 
Yeah, so that was misreported, uh, um, understandably. Okay. Uh, I, I said by the so he's today he gives his response, and then the hearing is a week from today. Uh, so when I said Friday, it's Friday the fifteenth. So I hope I'll have a chance for you know. I, I hope I people will will understand that that misreporting when it happens. So what I said is I think the. I think I so, and I do think yes. The upshot of his hearing will be his going to jail, and it could even be this was a you know a little bit more of uh, you know dramatic punditry, but it could even be uh, you know in court it, itself. But why do I think that? Because the 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 statutory scheme. If he is found by probable cause, a relatively low standard, the same you use for granting of a search warrant to have committed a crime. Uh, and the crime here would be tampering with witnesses. Uh, then a presumption arises under the statute that there is no combination of circumstances that will suffice to secure his return for trial. In other words, he can't have any bond. So it's it's no sort of you know swashbuckling uh, prediction of the court. It's rather this is how the law works. The law says. Is that if there's probable cause you commit a crime, to me it seems really straightforward. There's probable cause you committed a crime. Then this presumption uh, comes into play. So then what can he do? He can try to defeat the presumption. How? Typically, he'll have to somehow show that even though it seems like I was trying to uh, meddle with witnesses, that's really not a, what not what I was doing. I was just, you know, it's our code for, for ordering uh, cheesesteaks. Uh, if he convinces the the court of of that, then he'll stay out of jail. But I think he's got a steep uphill battle. So I think I, I just think under the law he loses, and 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 courts will often in this situation when they're you know as he's sitting there say you know if there's no combination then he's then he's got he has no bail, and he has to go in. It's also possible that the court would say. Um, you've got to go to jail. I'll give you a week to surrender. But I would take that as a as a victory for my prognostication anyway. But the main thing is the he- the hearing is a week from Friday, not this Friday. And got you it. know, I uh, I hope people don't won't um, won't think I'm a I'm a dumb dumb. And when 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 this Friday passes, and oh, still well, it, this won't uh, post until probably beginning of the week, and so. Uh, it'll all make sense because it'll be by the mm-hmm. end of the week as folks are yeah. listening uh, to exactly right. what we're saying. Um, yeah. More news. Uh, just this morning, and so I know I, th- I believe you're on West Coast time, so you, I don't know to what extent you heard it, but uh, on his way to the G7, uh, President Trump said that he is uh, thinking, I think, of thousands of pardons, uh, headlining them as yeah. uh, Muhammad Ali, but uh, others as well. And um, uh, he did uh, he did one yesterday. Uh, you obviously, I assume that you were part of that process as U.S. attorney and perhaps even uh, in your role uh, within the attorney general's office specifically. Uh, from a legal and process point of view, so kind of not a political, although if you have a political point of view, that's fine as well. Um, what's your view of, of uh, Trump's handling of pardons? Yeah, I've got a long piece on this coming out in lawfare. I think, though, it's practical impact. Um uh, leaving the practical impact on a theoretical um, uh, level, it's the most probably corrupt and lawless uh, exercise of presidential power he's had 
period. Now, why do I say that? I start with the proposition that pardons really matter. They're, you know, it's a, it's a deep expression of the line between mercy and justice, not to be too highfalutin about it, but that marks, you know, kind of the deepest aspirations and the, and the, the, you know, the dual aspects of justice for a civilized society. So it really matters that there's this escape valve, but it really matters that it's really rarely used. And it really matters that it be routinized and fit and fair and there be attention to, you know, equal protection problems. It's not that, you know, a president should never be able to override for political or policy reasons, but, but process in pardons really matters. And that's point one. And point two is there's been, I can't think of another area where he has so taken it as his sort of, you know, political play box. He's a spoiled little child in a, you know, in overalls in a sandbox, just like doing, you know, playing with a shovel. And, and these are, these are pardons on behalf of, of everyone. And the individual ones have been either, you know, politically corrupt or incredibly capricious. And, um, they're really as a matter of, you know, sober exercise of presidential power, they're, they're repugnant. Um, so, uh, you know, I think they're almost a crystalline example of, of his contempt for the rule of law and his kind of megalomania. I've got a longer piece, as I say, coming out within a couple of days in, in lawfare. Now it would be interesting if all of a sudden he does thousands in some ways it's worse because he's, you know, completely written out the, the, um, the role of the pardon attorney in, uh, in this, in some ways, I don't know. It's a, it's better in the sense that the five he's done now, with one exception, each of them is almost a perfect example of of um, what what one shouldn't do in the exercise of the the pardon power, you know. But I find it really. You, and there's also kind of a relish on his part with you know pardoning uh, Sheriff Arpaio or Scooter Libby, obviously for political reasons, and it's deeply, I think, unpresidential. And to close out, um, leaks. As we're talking, news was breaking this morning um, that uh, former Senate Intelligence Committee aide was arrested uh, yesterday, Thursday, um, an investigation of classified information leaks, New York Times reported, where prosecutors also secretly seized years worth of a New York Times reporter's phone and email records. Uh, Again, your former U.S. attorney and DOJ official, among the reasons why uh, I asked if you had time to talk. Um, what's your view of this process, arresting the Senate aide and secretly seizing reporters' records? Yeah, look, so I don't know enough. It's quite obviously, you know, worrisome and chilling and I'm generally in support of a free and vigorous press. But, but you know, with the failure of all the institutional actors in the Trump era, especially the Congress and the Republicans, you know, the, the, the courts and the free press are where, um, you know, the, are, are the protectors as best I can tell of the, of the, um, you know, values and principles where we're, we're hoping to, to preserve and, and not, and not see to erode it. So, I'll say two things. I'm, you know, I get very skittish when I hear this sort of stuff, but I can say for what it's worth, I, you know, give my own testimony as someone who's been in the department, that the department gets very skittish. It is not at all um, casual 
about trenching on especially reporters um you know uh rights and and um notes and that kind of stuff so i don't know enough about the facts but i think and hope unless it's some really corrupt order from the top that when you look at it hard you'll find you know people really thought about it and really weighed it in the balance that certainly is how it would have been not just when I was there, but when, you know, in other, in Republican administrations, et cetera, if it wasn't that way, woe be unto us. But I, I would be based on the record, not too uh, quick to um, condemn without really looking at the process closely. Harry, thank you. Did, did you ever imagine thank, there would be such thank. a robust aftermarket for U.S. attorneys? <laughs> it's so funny. I, uh, I, I'm also thinking that in, um, you know, in five years, it's going to be a long unemployment line <laughs> for U.S. attorneys who talked about uh, Trump and, and Mueller. It was totally happenstance for me. It didn't. I don't know if we're still taping or not. But the, yes, but we I are. Didn't, yes, we I are. didn't get into the. OK, well, I didn't get into the business as a former U.S. attorney. Exactly. There were some things that happened that I wanted to write about. And I did. And then once I did that, I guess it burnished my credentials. Some that I'm, you know, former U.S. Attorney DOJ official, and I, I hope that's right, and I hope it means I have something to um, offer. But in the first instance, you know, I, I, I want, I had things I wanted to write about, and they've somehow um, translated into, um, uh, you know, being on, uh, being a, a, a pundit on, T, on TV a lot, which is, you know, interesting and and fun. But I hope when, you know, in general, to continue to be. Uh, contributing as a as a writer, even when whenever it happens that um, that the Trump administration is over, I'm sure that you will. Thank you, Harry. Thanks for your time. That was my conversation with Harry Littman. Want more from Harry? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, can a president be indicted? Plus, sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of a recent guest's book. My thanks to Harry for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.